X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Monday, June 29th. Today, back in the day, June 29th, 1964, the Civil Rights Act of that same year passed after an 83-day filibuster in the United States Senate. Southern Democrats tried to block the passage. President Lyndon Johnson and Senator Hubert Humphrey worked together to get the bill passed, working on amendments with Everett Dirksen to get a bipartisan cloture vote, overcoming the Dixiecrat opposition. The passage of the act bent the arc of history towards justice and changed the American political map for half a century. Prior to 1964, the South voted as a block for the Democratic Party. In the 50 years since, the South has given nearly all of its electoral college votes to Republican presidential candidates. Southerners Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton have been the only Democratic presidential candidates to win any significant electoral college votes in the South since. And yesterday, back in the day, June 28, 1914, Archduke Ferdinand and his wife Sophie were assassinated. That outraged Austria-Hungary, and with Germany's support, they declared war on Serbia. Within days, Germany declared war on Russia, Serbia's ally, and invaded France via Belgium, which then caused Britain to declare war on Germany. And the Great World War had begun. They didn't call it World War I then, they didn't anticipate the sequel, although the post-war punitive measures on Germany probably did lay the groundwork. Today on The Local, we'll start with your quick six. We'll have an in-depth story from Barb Seaman about the Clark County Council, an exchange between County Chair Eileen Queering and Councilor Temple Lentz about how the council looks to show support on racial justice. We'll also have an interview with Alan Durning, founder of the Sightland Institute, the leading policy think tank in the Pacific Northwest. I'll pose the question, if Alan Durning had three policy wishes for democracy in the coming few years, what would they be? First up, it is today's Quick Six Local Rundown. For the legislative session wrapped on Friday evening, and what passed in that very special, special legislative session? Chamber took up a combined 22 bills, six of them on police reforms, others on coronavirus relief, along with some other subjects. And here's a rundown of some of the most notable bills. They are now headed to the desk of Governor Kate Brown. So six police accountability bills were at the forefront of the special session. Reform advocates wanted to strengthen that bill. The police union remained opposed even as it stood, and the bill passed without meaningful amendments either way. The other bills got amended. House Bill 4201 had established the Joint Committee on Transparent Policing and Use of Force Reform. What does that bill do? Well, it doesn't really do what a bill does. It just says there might be another bill someday. The panel is supposed to make recommendations by the end of the year for additional legislative action. This was originally the bill to create independent investigations of use of deadly force cases by turning those cases over to the state attorney general's office. We'll be interviewing Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum about that and other things, so listeners of the local will have that in tomorrow's feed. House Bill 4203, that bans the use of chokeholds unless deadly force is justified according to the officer and witnesses. But nothing was done to amend Oregon's use of force statute, which reformers deem as more permissive than the bulk of other states. The original draft of House Bill 4203 banned the practice entirely, but law enforcement lobbyists were able to change the bill. House Bill 4208, that allows the use of tear gas. Instead of the proposal to ban tear gas, it adds some steps pre-tear gas. Police must first declare that there's a riot, must announce that they're going to use some tear gas, and they got to give people some time to run away. So instead of a no tear gas rule, it's a you better really mean it and let people know before you tear gas them rule. House Bill 4205, that requires officers to take action to prevent or report fellow officers engaged in misconduct. This is the duty to intervene. 
and House Bill 4207. That requires the state to maintain public records on police discipline. Law enforcement agencies statewide have to check those records when hiring an officer. And again, that big note, not only was there not a proposal to address Oregon's use of force statute, there was also nothing proposed to address qualified immunity. We'll continue to follow this story. On COVID-19 relief, House Bill 4213, that extends the state's moratorium on residential and commercial evictions. It was set to expire tomorrow. Instead, evictions will be banned in most cases until September 30th, after the summer. Renters will have until March 31st, 2021 to pay back unpaid rent. However, renters will be expected to pay current rents accrued beginning October 1st. House Bill 4204, that bill prohibits lenders from pursuing foreclosures against homeowners through September 30th. House Bill 4212, this was a big omnibus bill. It included a wide variety of stuff, including allowing state courts to delay jury trials while defendant is in custody, easing requirements for citing homeless shelters, and ensuring taxpayer payments under the CARES Act cannot be garnished. And then Senate Bill 1606. That creates new protections for disabled patients to ensure they are not forced to sign end-of-life agreements when entering the hospital and are able to access personal support. And some other measures that were ready to pass during the last full session but died when Republicans ran away to Idaho. Senate Bill 1602 creates new requirements for aerial pesticide spraying by timber companies. Senate Bill 1603 extends the existing tax on phone service to cell phone providers, also allocates up to $5 million a year towards expanding broadband in rural areas. Senate Bill 1605 That increases state standards for out-of-state residential facilities that are able to house Oregon foster children. The bill allows children who are sent for care out-of-state to access Oregon financial assistance for community college. And House Bill 4210. That ensures that a person's Oregon driving privileges cannot be suspended because they have failed to pay off their traffic fines. That kicks in October 1st. So what's next for Salem? Brown says she expects to convene another special session later this summer. That session will focus on balancing the state's two-year budget, which, due to the pandemic, is expected to take in nearly $2.7 billion less than forecast. First of all, the governor said she's waiting on Congress for any additional aid that could help Oregon. And here's the governor's quote Saturday at a press conference. If we don't see action by the end of July, then I will be expecting to call the legislature in very quickly to look at budget reductions and plan for the next biennium. Biennium just means two years. And, and a little background for people who are new to this, and I hope people will share it with people who are new to this. We want this so there are more people engaged in our democracy, including young people who are just figuring this stuff out. We budget every two years. It's kind of a relic. Most organizations budget every one year. But because Western states wanted a citizen legislature, a rural ideal that people would come off the farm and serve in the legislature and then return to the farm, the idea was we would have a budget that would last two years. So when we say next biennium, that's what we're talking about. Next up, your daily dose of coronavirus data. 247 new cases. We are now at 8,341 known cases. About 100 of those were in the Portland metro area. 48 new cases in Umatilla County. 43 in Marion County. That's where the pickles are going to go play. The death rate remains steady. No new deaths on Sunday. We now do have 202 confirmed coronavirus deaths in the state. According to the Oregon Health Authority, Black Lives Matter demonstrations have not contributed significantly to the spike in coronavirus cases. Portland is nearing 30 days of Black Lives Matter demonstrations and mass gatherings to protest racism and police brutality. COVID-19 symptoms usually take 2 to 14 days to appear after someone is infected. 
OHA says the spike in cases stems primarily from small social gatherings with friends and family and transmissions in the workplace. Apparently, it typically takes about a thousand particles to transmit it. Outside, those particles dissipate pretty well unless you sneeze or lick someone or breathe on them a bunch without wearing a mask. Multnomah County Health Officer Dr. Jennifer Vine said the low number of cases from protests may indicate that face coverings work. On Friday, the state published a projection that showed by mid-July, Oregon could have as many as 5,000 new cases a day. The Institute for Disease Modeling in a June 25th report projected in a worst-case scenario, Oregon could see as many as 5,000 daily COVID cases by July 16th. A moderate scenario suggests that daily cases will rise to 910 cases a day. For reference, the current daily average is about 180 new cases a day. As for Washington state, they have paused their reopening. The state's recent increase in cases says, according to the governor, counties won't be moving to the fourth phase of the reopening plan for now. And Governor Inslee did announce a mandatory mask order last Tuesday. The new TriMet budget is reflecting the economic impact of COVID-19. TriMet's board of directors passed the agency's $1.6 billion budget for fiscal year 2021. That begins in July on Wednesday. Before the pandemic hit, TriMet's ridership had been steadily growing over the past year. The agency looked forward to increasing bus service by 3%. But as soon as Governor Brown issued her stay-at-home orders, TriMet's ridership plunged. It dropped by 70% at the height of the pandemic. That cost about $28 million in fare revenue from March through June. TriMet also saw a reduction in payroll taxes. Oregonians pay a 0.01% transit payroll tax. That totals $48 million in the same three-month period, thanks to coronavirus-induced big layoffs. Some more math. According to TriMet estimates, the gap from lost fares and payroll taxes next year will add up to about $135 million. Those losses should be offset by $185 million TriMet recently got from the Federal CARES Act. But that is a one-time allotment. The recession prompted by COVID-19 is expected to last for potentially years. Transit ridership currently hovers about two-thirds of what it was prior to the pandemic. And to make up for that gap, TriMet is reducing services by about 20 percent to adjust to the decreased demand. The plan now is to bring services back up to about 90 percent of previous level by the end of August. Portland police are going to temporarily limit tear gas and other devices. Portland leaders and a group of protesters have reached a temporary agreement about police use of tear gas and crowd control methods. Don't Shoot Portland, a nonprofit civil rights organization, and three individuals are named in a federal lawsuit filed against the city. Four days later, U.S. District Court Judge Marco Hernandez granted a TRO, a temporary restraining order. Portland police have used tear gas at least once since then, but they've used it far less frequently than before. Protesters in Don't Shoot Portland have since expanded their lawsuit to include other types of less lethal munitions, like the FN-303 riot gun and the 40mm launchers. The FN-303 is a rifle. It shoots a 17mm projectile, about the size of a grape. They're designed to shatter on impact, so in theory they don't penetrate the skin. The rounds can deliver paint or OC powder, otherwise known as tear gas. The 40mm launchers fire a foam projectile that, similar to the FN-303, can be used to inflict pain or deliver tear gas. Both of those weapons and weapons like them are in use around the country and have caused severe injuries and, in rare cases, death. The Vancouver NAACP have called for the Clark County Chair's resignation. Last week, Clark County Chair Eileen Queering said she does not believe systemic racism exists in the community. The Vancouver NAACP president, Bridget Fambula, wrote to Queering, Your comments and attitude prove that you lack the knowledge, integrity, and vision to competently lead our county. 
During a county meeting on Wednesday, Queering defended the Clark County Sheriff's Office decision to put flag decals on patrol vehicles. Those decals are associated with the Blue Lives Matter slogan. And during that meeting, Queering said, I do not believe that we have systemic racism in our county, period. Washington's League of United Latin American Citizens, or LULAC, joined the NAACP call on Saturday, also asking for Queering's resignation. LULAC said in their statement, I am quoting, through expressive racist statement, Queering has demonstrated a callous disregard for black and brown people living in Clark County. In our community, racial inequities are visible in the law, as well as in thoughts, actions, and inactions. As of Saturday, Queering told Clark County today that she has no plans to leave her position. Barb Seaman has more from Clark County in just a little bit. And OHSU President Dr. Danny Jacobs announced on Friday that OHSU has terminated its contract with the Oregon Correction Enterprises, which uses prison laborers to clean the hospital's laundry. Since 1995, OHSU has sent its laundry to the Oregon State Penitentiary. Now OHSU says the use of prison labor runs counter to its values. Oregon Nurses Association says the change would not have happened without pressure from staff. Since nurses began renegotiating their contracts in January, they've been advocating for racial equity policies, including stopping the hospital's use of prison labor and no longer have armed security guards staffing the hospital. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. We are seeing elected leaders step up in this moment to move policy forward for racial justice, liberation, and healing. As we discussed in the Quick 6 last week, the Clark County Council faced a moment that brought counselors to a discussion clarifying values and their next steps. Here's Barb Seaman from X-Ray and partner station KXRW with coverage of the exchange between County Chair Eileen Quiring and Counselor Temple Lentz. For X-Ray FM and KXRW of Vancouver, I'm Barb Seaman. Last week, the Clark County Council sent a letter to NAACP Vancouver that said, The County Council is committed to taking meaningful action to eliminate hate, bigotry, and racism in our county. It was signed by all members of the Council, except Council Chair Eileen Quiring. Councilor Temple Lentz introduced the letter at the Council meeting last Wednesday. I uh, was hoping that we could send a letter, make a statement in response to and supportive of uh, the Sheriff's recent decision to remove the thin blue line and blue lives matter material from uh, sheriff's office buildings and vehicles. This began a series of heated exchanges with council chair choiring. Because you are offering this letter for the council to sign, and I want to know what you believe the thin blue line decal means, please. Okay. I think that it has come to mean to a large and undervalued section of our community, distrust of law enforcement. I think that regardless of what anyone claims the original meaning was, that meaning has been distorted and it means different things. Would you please- And for publicly owned property, to bear an insignia that has nothing to do with the public agency that owns it, especially when that insignia is divisive and means different things to different people, is utterly inappropriate. When you try to compare a Black Lives Matter with a response Blue Lives Matter, when you fail to talk about systemic and structural racism that is at the heart of these issues and that have led 
people to protest because of ongoing injustice and inequity, injustice, that we need to be responsive to that. Yeah, I what I find, Councillor Lance, is this is very disturbing to me. I do not agree with what the sheriff has done. I completely disagree with it. I believe I honor people who have given their lives in the line of duty to enforce laws that we as leaders make. And they have to go out there and enforce these laws. I believe their lives matter. I think it's horrible when people are discriminated against, and I feel empathy for those people too. That does not mean that we have to set aside the people who defend the laws that we write, that we uh, that we place. And I think, uh, I actually, I do not agree with this letter. I will not sign it because I don't, I do not agree that we have systemic racism in our county, period. I wanna say that talking about supporting people who want to eradicate systemic injustice does not mean setting aside law enforcement, does not mean undervaluing others. This isn't pie. It's not like there is a certain amount of justice to go around, or there certainly shouldn't be. I am very grateful to our law enforcement officers who do do excellent work. That said, there are a number of people in our community who deal with injustice every single day. And when they come to us and tell us that a decal that shouldn't even be on the police vehicles because it is not a county insignia, when they come and tell them that that makes tell us that that makes them concerned about whether or not they can trust law enforcement in our community that is something worth listening to and i very much appreciate the sheriff recognizing that in order for us to have productive conversations we need to remove barriers to those conversations and i thank him for making this decision that i know wasn't easy and if you don't agree with it, then I welcome you not signing this letter. Clark County Councilor Temple Lentz speaking at last Wednesday's council meeting. For X-Ray FM and KXRW Vancouver, I'm Barb Seaman. The Sightline Institute exists to make the Pacific Northwest a global model of sustainability. Up next, we have Sightline founder Alan Durning and Jefferson Smith on the next steps for the pro-democracy movement. Despite the pandemic, we are still seeing a building boom in Northwest cities. You look around Portland, look around Seattle, still see a bunch of cranes, a bunch of scaffolding. Alan Durning is a leader in the world of understanding sustainable building, founded the Sightline Institute in 1993, has written 10 books on issues that connect sustainability to home, transportation, and city design, his lecture at the White House, and now he is on X-Ray. Thank you for being with us today, Alan Durning. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Man, it's been too long. So what's happening at the Sightline Institute right now? Well, like everybody, we're trying to adapt to... Uh, coronavirus and uprising and economic collapse all at once and uh, stay relevant uh, and you know doing our best 
Do you define the, uh, yourself these days as a think tank, or you like a different term? No, think tank is fine. All right. So you know, we do research on 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 key issues that uh, concern the future of the Pacific Northwest. Our mission is to make the, the region a global model of sustainability. Uh, so we do climate and clean energy work. We did green, green cities work. We have a farms and forest program. And the last decade, we've also had a real uh, strong program on democracy reform because we can't do any of the previous things I mentioned unless we can get our democracy working better, as you well know. And I want to talk to you about a few of those things. Let's start with the building stuff. Let's start what's happening with the mm-hmm. economy. I remember when, what year was it? Back when gas prices were really high and there was a, the early discussions of what morphed into the conversation around the Green New Deal, the early discussions about uh, blue-green coalition and how mm-hmm. can we really you know, get America's economy moving using this technology. And then all of a sudden gas prices get lower and people seem to move on. What's the state of affairs? What's the state of play in the efforts to remake the American economy with the environment at least mildly in mind? Yeah, well, you know, I think um, you can imagine a scenario now where uh, where you have a, a big blue wave in November. I was just looking at uh, New York Times polling this morning that suggests we're heading in that direction. When the, the door would open again to uh, a, a, a transformative kind of new, um, of Green New Deal. Um, of course, it'll be compromised politically, but you can imagine a scenario where we have we have tens or hundreds of billions of dollars of federal money available to invest in the kind of green infrastructure that we need, along with the kinds of policy reforms that could help us make the transformation. So we will need to have economic stimulus, um, and we can do it in a way that helps the climate, or we can do it in a way that hurts the climate. We can do it in a way that advances social and racial equity, or in a way that harms them. And I, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic that we may uh, we may you know we've we've backslid in recent years, but we may leap forward starting next year. Twenty years ago, it's almost it's almost spooky when we were starting we were starting the bus project. And I said, listen, we're we're a decade or two away. If we use yeah. the last century as a model, that the that you had sort of the dawn of the the dawn of the progressive era, but it didn't happen in a month or two. You couldn't get you couldn't get women's suffrage done for the first four states, the first four times that Oregon tried to get it done, and it didn't start right. in Congress. And that it sh- and almost spookily, about twenty years later, it looks like there might really be a significant shift, not just state by state, but nationally. If you were going to be able to wave a sight line magic wand towards mm-hmm. President Biden and a Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and maybe even a, a, a Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer, what would yeah. be the spells you would cast? What would be your three wishes? That's a great question. You, um, first thing I've always wished for is more wishes Oh, and by the way, by the way, that's what the Republicans wish for every time. More wishes. And how they wish for it, they do it by voter suppression and changing the yeah. money rules, et cetera. But go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll mention, uh, I can't limit myself to three, but uh, I will uh, I'll start. So I think we should have statehood for D.C. and uh, a referendum in Puerto Rico, a real referendum in Puerto Rico to see about state, statehood there. The, the U.S. Senate is structurally imbalanced against uh, against the large progressive states. And D.C. and Puerto Rico have substantially larger populations than the smallest U.S. states, and there's a uh, there's a strong case that they should be states as well, and that would help us on all kinds of things. It would advance democracy and also um, open the door for progressive change and a number of other in, across a whole bunch of issues. And then related to that, there's a whole bunch of other democracy forms that we ought to have. We ought to have um, uh, nationwide uh, automatic voter registration for everyone who's got a driver's license or is otherwise um, in a state database as a, a 
as a citizen of the United States, they should be automatically registered to vote. We should have um, dramatic Im- investment nationwide in improving our electoral infrastructure. I'm a big supporter of ranked choice voting and proportional representation, other electoral reforms, because we've got to make the system um, more responsive to what the American public actually wants. Uh, and if we did that, we could make a lot of progress on a lot of other issues. Now, moving from the democracy reform bucket to the uh, to the economic. Before you do that, real quick, bucket. let's keep going. Yeah, and yeah. by the way, this is if you're part of the pro democracy coalition, set aside your political party for a moment. But if a listener here is a member of the pro democracy coalition, then what Alan Durning just did was ask for more wishes by ha- adding District Columbia as a state, maybe Puerto Rico as a state, having 52-card pickup rather than 50 states, that could build the pro-democracy power in Congress. Same thing with automatic voter registration. I wanted to just ask, because it's happening here locally, there's folks in Eugene pushing on it. Has the has star voting crossed your radar? Sure. Uh, sure, yeah. We, we, we follow the star voting uh, proposals, and, and we think someone should try it somewhere. Um, the, we're bigger proponents of ranked choice voting, which is a you know the same family but a different subcategory of, uh, of voting reform. Mostly because it's been practiced in a lot of places already, and we, we know how it works. And we're especially enthusiastic about proportional representation systems that uh, that will ensure that the legislative body accurately accurately reflects the uh, the true diversity of views in the, among the public. Um, but we're a ways from. We're a ways from getting widespread use of either star voting sure. or representation. We need to we need to set up um, systems at the federal and state level to allow a lot more experimentation. And there's real movement afoot in Portland, as you know, uh, to make the uh, the city council um, either proportional, ranked choice, or somehow better reflective of, of the public in the city. But let's 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 move go to the economy. The, to the to the economy, um, you know. Jenny Schutz is my favorite national analyst of our housing crisis in this country, says there are actually two different housing crises going on. The first is uh, what we experienced in Portland and Seattle and other prosperous, you know, uh, tech cities where uh, we just don't have enough supply. And as a result, housing prices surge. Um, We have soaring homelessness at the bottom end because there's no, you know, housing is like a game of musical chairs. There are not enough chairs and some people are going to end up on the ground. Um, and we need a response to that at the at the local, state, and federal level. Uh, the separate uh, housing crisis is that the bottom quarter or third of the income ladder just doesn't have enough money to get into housing. Period. Anywhere. That's a national crisis. It's not. It's not just in the high-priced, prospering cities. And I think we can solve both of them in a Biden administration um, with a two-pronged approach. The first is to make rental assistance an entitlement. So already the United States has a program called Section 8 Vouchers. I think they've got a new name for it. But uh, it provides um, it's kind of like food stamps for housing. Um, and uh, but, but only about 20% of people who are eligible for that actually can get it because it depends on annual congressional appropriations. But food stamps and Medicaid, as you know, are entitlements. If you're a legal resident of the United States, you get, to, you get them, and the Congress has to come up with the money for them. Um, I think we should make housing a similar entitlement. And if we did that, we would go a long way towards solving the second of those two housing crises. That is just that the bottom end of the income ladder doesn't have, have enough money to get into housing. Pouring that money into um, into housing assistance, uh, though, would be putting uh, gasoline on the fires of 
housing prices in expensive cities like Portland. You just yeah, that's the thing I wanted to ask about, because so often yeah. what you hear is some system that gets more money into housing, and I worry it's a similar effect to what's happened in colleges, where you give assistance to colleges, which is good, but then it makes it yeah. easier for colleges to jack up their prices, easier for landlords that's to right. jack up their rents, etc. Right. So first thing to, to remember is that, that not everywhere in the country has this scarcity problem with housing. There, there are plenty of places where putting more money in will not drive up costs, drive up housing costs. But in places like Portland and Seattle and San Francisco, uh, other high-priced, booming tech cities, um, we just need more supply. And if we if we don't increase the supply of housing at the same time that we're providing additional funds for low-income renters, we will have uh, escalating prices. Because you have, you know, it's, it's musical chairs. We have uh, more people chasing the same chairs. So we need to increase the supply. And the way to do that is to do things like Oregon has done, like Portland is about to do with its residential infill project, to relax and liberalize the um, the building co- the building and zoning codes to allow more duplexes and triplexes, fourplexes, more small apartment buildings uh, sprinkled all across the city. Oregon's done that statewide with the missing middle housing bill that passed last year, uh, and we think it's time for the federal government to begin conditioning federal funds on states and localities adopting those kinds of liberalizations. You know what we're living in is still. Than old the old zoning rules that came out of segregation and Jim Crow, right? The Supreme Court said, well, you can't discriminate explicitly on the basis of race. 1968, after uh, after Martin Luther King's assassination, Congress passed the Fair Housing Law. It said you can't explicitly discriminate on the basis of race. And, but the result was that look, states and localities everywhere just adopted economic-based discrimination. That is by by locking down most of the land supply to only only build single-family residences. And because race and class are so closely connected in the United States, we just started discriminating on the basis of class rather than race. And the result has been to exclude uh, low-income and um, communities of people of color from the single greatest wealth-generating mechanism in all the United States, which is home ownership. Right? We have we have locked most of the urban land only for people who can afford to buy a single-family house. So we can strike a blow for housing affordability for um, racial justice and for economic opportunity all at once with a federal housing package that will combine rental assistance for low-income families with a condition that states and localities have to loosen their zoning regulations to allow more construction of modest homes in neighborhoods all over their cities. What do you think? I got a question. Have you read, and I want to tug on this a little bit, have you read um, Triumph of the City? Yeah. So my takeaway from Triumph of the City was proximity. It's sort of obvious, but it still had a profound impact on how I think about this stuff. That the city, because I want to offer a contrary view, and when it comes to people who care about housing, it feels like a really contrary view at this point, and therefore I apologize in advance for it. No, no, please. The, but essentially, the Triumph of the City argument, uh, their analysis is, the reason cities are so valuable is because you have a bunch of people next to each other. So Detroit can make cars because the inventor of that part, the inventor of that part sort of meet each other. They both get smarter. They make something they would have made, wouldn't have made otherwise. That means that the theater there can charge more. And eventually, uh, without me spelling out all the proximity effects, the fact that more people are jammed in together makes all of it more valuable. Similarly, the uh, now that we are trying to add supply that the big argument using classical economics is well it's supply and demand problem we've got more demand for housing we've got more millennials aging up having kids wanting to have a have a house so we've got to boost the supply to match that demand as we boost that supply within cities 
It will also increase, it seems to me, the value of those cities because each of those commercial uh, establishments, for instance, will now have more potential customers. So they'll, it'll be, you know, your movie theater will be a more valuable movie theater. Your office building will be a more valuable office building. That in fact, by packing it in further, and by the way, this ends up being an argument potentially against statewide land use planning and things like, uh, like zoning protections, which I strongly support. So I end up conflicting with my own predilections and preferences. So I, so I tug at it with genuine curiosity. But my concern is, is that we continue to invest in cities. And what we do is every time we add someone there, we add some supply, we are in fact adding more value and therefore over time adding more price. How am I wrong? I think you're confusing. Uh, I think you're confusing two things. Um, the aggregate, uh, well, I'm going to get for a second, the aggregate value of urban land and the, uh, and the price per person of using that urban land. So you're right that, um, that the aggregate value of urban land, which is where we capitalize the value of a local economy, goes up the bigger the city gets. So New York is uh, New York's land costs more than uh, than Tuscaloosa's land does. But um, and, but and its rents are higher. Doesn't have, but and and rents are higher. Yes, but um, well, the specific examples are hard to compare because New York partly rents are so high in New York because they have strict restrictions on construction. So think of a, a better example would be Tokyo, largest city in the world. It's the only so, example anybody's ever been able to give me of where greater supply has yielded lower lower price. I've got I've got a whole article, uh, seven examples around the world of nice. cities where adding supply has, uh, where where the, there's adequate supply and therefore housing costs are not high, even though it's a great big city and it's super prosperous. Uh, most German cities are examples of that. Vienna is a, is a very nice example of it. Uh, Chicago is actually a pretty example of it. Montreal is a good example of it. Uh, Tokyo. Um, most of the East Asian cities actually do a better job of provi- providing supply. But anyway, coming back to... No, not anyway. That's really helpful. Where can we find the article? Pre- presumably, sightline.org. Yes. But may, what's the yeah, easiest way to find it? I did, we did this a few years ago. It's called, Yes, You Can Build Your Way to Affordable Housing. Um, and I don't... I mean... I'm making the supply, the purest supply side argument. I don't want you to think I'm purely a supply sider. I also think we need substantial uh, government regulation and investment to um, to deal with the equity dimensions of housing. But I do think one dimension of it is that we need more supply. The cost per person. So what I was saying was aggregate value of a city goes up when, when more people come, but the cost per person don't have to go up. The question is whether we are whether we are building enough housing to keep up with the growth, and we haven't done that in North American cities for a long, long time. There's the short answer. Hugely helpful. I want to say thank you so much. People can check out more at sightlineinstitute.org. Thank you so much for your work. You're a Pacific Northwest hero. Well, thank you very much, sir, and I'm happy to come back another time. Let's do it again. Bye-bye. Thanks to Barb and to Susan KXRW. Thanks to Alan for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for sticking together while we're apart. Thanks for wearing your mask, and thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.